Lord, we come to you with thankful hearts for how you have blessed us in so many ways. Lord, our hearts are fixed, or our minds are fixed with uh, thoughts of thanksgiving this week. And sometimes our hearts follow and sometimes they don't. And so we come asking that you would give us thankful hearts. That even in this act of worship, that you would cause what we give to lead our hearts, that our affections would follow to see that you are our great treasure. And you is not only our hope and our future, but our present help in time of need. You are our Savior, our Deliverer, our Redeemer, and you are our friend. And so, Lord, fill our hearts with thankfulness as we lift up these, our tithes and our offerings to you, giving to to, to you these things in faith, trusting that you would make them effective for your pleasure and good work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15. As I mentioned last week, um, this is part two. It wasn't initially the plan, but uh, that's how things work sometimes. So we're still in Genesis 15. We're going to finish it today. Genesis 15 in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord... What will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Come now and instruct us by it. 
Cause our, our ears to hear from you today. Give our minds not only understanding, but penetrate our hard hearts, Lord, to give us a love and a faith for you that is growing in measure. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. So last week we began, we looked, there's two episodes that we see here in Genesis 15. Last week we looked at that which focused on the promise of a son. Uh, Abram reminds God, okay, how am I going to possess it? I don't have a son. And God leads him outside. It's nighttime. He says, look up at the stars. Count them if you're able. Count the stars. Um, it's becoming that time of year where we can see more stars. It's a little clearer feels a little darker. I think the cold air makes it easier for us to see. And we can only imagine what Abram saw before any light pollution or anything like that, how many stars that he actually saw. And even as we discover more and more through technology just how many stars there are, it only makes this promise that much more incredible, that one day the descendants of Abram would number more than the stars. Today we look at the other component of the covenant, and that is the land. And in particular, the ratification of the covenant itself. That's what I want us to focus on today. Now, in our time, in our day, in the new covenant, we have two sacraments that were instituted by Christ that we practice, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both the sacraments are called a means of grace. When we talk about a means of grace, we're typically, in our tradition, speaking of the word, prayer, and the sacraments that those are the ordinary means of grace, that those are the uh, way, the ordinary way or the normal way that God dispenses grace to us. It's, it's the sense that you can count on finding God's grace in the Word, in prayer, and in sacraments. Of course, the Lord is not limited to those things to dispense grace, and He often does show us grace in many different ways and in many different things. But as the Westminster Confession of Faith states, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so something uniquely happens in the sacraments, and God gives us grace. And this is something that all of us have experienced, something that we know that God does through these. But In this episode of the Old Testament, God is establishing the covenant with Abraham, and we know the sign of the covenant is circumcision, but we're not there yet. This doesn't happen yet, so the sign has not yet been given, and yet the covenant is being ratified right here in chapter 15. This is the Abrahamic covenant, and yet this episode still functions as a means of grace. In that, God takes something very ordinary, very normal, not to us. I mean, this is no way normal or ordinary. Uh, animals being cut in half and smoking pots and flaming torches and walking in between them. And, but in this day, this was an ordinary way by which a covenant was ratified. And he takes ordinary things and uses them to teach and instruct Abram, but also to dispense his grace. But not only to Abram, to us as well, because these things have been written for us to come and to look at and to learn. Now, as I mentioned, there's the ordinary means of grace, 
the, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Ray Ortland describes the ordinary means of grace as the place where God has concentrated his availability like a gushing fountain of mercy for sinners. It's where we go. And I want to just take this moment to, 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 to remind you of this. You know, sometimes we talk about things and we hear the word means of grace and we know it's a familiar term. What does it really mean? Remember that the ordinary means of grace, God's word, prayer, and the sacraments are like a gushing fountain available to you and to me whereby we can count when we come, on, when we, when we come to those things. We can count on receiving God's grace in and through those things. But like I said, there are times that we see in our own lives where God gives us great grace through other means uh, which we're thankful for. And that is the case in this. God could have simply told Abram, I promise to give you a son. I promise to give you the land. And that would have been enough because he's God. His promises are true. But he goes beyond simply giving the promise to not only do this act that we see happening with the animals and so forth as as an instruction, but by establishing a covenant. Because a covenant is about relationship. A covenant is something that's different than just a promise. Anyone can walk up to you and make a promise to you and you can choose to believe that promise or not. But a covenant is something that you're invited into something that you're a part of, something that involves relationship. And this is what we see God do. It's what he does with Abram, and it's what he does with us as well. And so in the first six verses, as we mentioned, God reiterates the promise of an heir, a son who will be born to Abram and Sarai. And then in verse 7, he reiterates the promise of the land. This is the same promise that we read in Genesis 12, 7. And here he says... I'm going, to do, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this. The promise is sure, but we get some extra details. We get some extra details that may not be what we expected. But before he gives the details, look, look at what he says. He says, I am the Lord. Now, we talked about this a little last week, this I am formula, the, the self-existent one, that this is who God reveals himself as. He's here, he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And so he's basing this promise, he's helping Abram to see it's based on who he is, I am the Lord, and also his faithfulness. What has he done? He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, that God is trustworthy, that he's faithful, that we can look back at God's track record and see that he keeps his promises. And this is enough. This is enough to believe God, to hear him say, I am the Lord Look at what I've done. I am faithful. And yet, he gives us something more. Now, he also mentions the people that he's going to dispossess in the land. And this, if you notice, uh, how many people are here? There are ten names of people. This isn't an exhaustive list, but what does the number ten mean in Hebrew? As we've already seen, it's, it's a representative of completeness. So this is representing the whole land, that God's going to give them the whole land, and these people in verses 18 to 21 are all going to be dispossessed for the people of God to inherit it, the descendants. And so now we're starting to get more of the picture. Abram himself is not going to get the land. It is the land of promise. It is the land that is going to come to his descendants. 
And it's not coming anytime soon. It's going to be quite some time before they inherit it. This doesn't cause Abram to waver, though. He says, only how shall I know? Love Abram's honesty. We saw it last week with the promise of a child. He does it again this, 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 uh, in this episode. Okay, Lord, you've said land a couple times now. How am I to know? And then to this question, God's, God gives Abram this object lesson uh, in, the, in the establishing of a covenant. Now, as I mentioned, this was not an ordinary thing in this time. This was an ordinary pattern by which people entered into a covenant. Animals would be killed, animals would be cut in two, and the parties would walk through in the path between the two halves of the animals that had been cut in two. And by doing this, they would be saying, let this happen to me if I don't keep my part of the bargain. Let this happen to me, what has happened to these animals. So the next time that you think that you're signing your life away when you purchase a house or purchase a car, remember the covenant because it's nothing compared to what people experienced in this. You also get some understanding too of why the phrase cutting a covenant is used. It's because of this, that animals were cut in half. There was both a blessing and a curse. It's signified in there. And we see this in the Passover. We see this in circumcision, certainly. But we also see this in baptism in the Lord's Supper, that there is both blessing and curse that is being signified. God takes this ordinary pattern of cutting a covenant, and he uses it to show Abram what he's going to do. The animals, he gives them instruction, gather these animals together. This doesn't seem to surprise Abram. And then beyond this, he doesn't give Abram any other instructions about what to do. He seems to know what to do. Abram takes the animals, he cuts them in two, uh, something he was familiar with. He cuts the larger animals in half. He lays them apart uh, with a path in between the normal way of doing things. He does not cut the birds, and I don't know why this is mentioned. There are some things that I try and offer you different explanations for, and there are th- some things that I can just say, we're going to keep moving. I don't know. And most commentators don't know either. Maybe pragmatic reasons that when you cut a turtle dove in half, there's not much left. I don't know, but he didn't cut those in half. Now, how do we know about this practice of cutting a covenant? You read this in the text, do you see what's happening here. You hear me saying this was normal, this was the way it was done, and I've added some additional information. How do we know all of this was really what happened? Well, there are historical uh, books and writings that we can go to to see that this was uh, not just among the, the, the people of God, but among pagans as well. This was a normal means by which people entered into a covenant. But I want to take you to Jeremiah 34, and you can listen or you can turn there with me if you like. Jeremiah 34 and verse 18. And it reads, And the men who transgressed my covenant, this is the Lord speaking, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. 
Again, sometimes Scripture is not something that is super comfortable for us to read or think about. These aren't things that we normally experience. Yet we see that all the way up to the time of Jeremiah, this was still a normal practice by which people of this time uh, entered into covenant. The leaders of God's people at this time in Jeremiah's day had repented of their sins. They had entered into great sin. The prophet Jeremiah had called them as a voice of the Lord to repentance. They had repented, and they, in repenting, cut a covenant themselves. And they all, you can see, he says, the, 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 the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Judah, the priests, the eunuchs, all the people of the land who passed through the calf. So they cut a calf in half, and they all passed through it as a way to signify before God that their repentance was true and genuine, and then they broke the covenant. If you go back into verse 16, we see what they did. It says, but then you turned around, and you get the idea of turning, you know, repentance. We talk about repentance as turning. Uh, This is the opposite of repentance. It's turning into sin. You turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. And so by breaking the covenant that they made before God through practicing slavery, God then says, I'm going to make you like the calf that they cut into. This is the fruit of that covenant and the breaking of that covenant. And so this is how it works. There is blessing in keeping and there is cursing in the breaking of it. And so this is what's happening. Hopefully this gives us some more understanding of what we see now in Genesis 15. Except God has called Abram to get the animals. He's prepared the animals, but there he stands alone, waiting by himself. So much so, we don't know how much time has passed, but long enough for birds of prey to come. Uh, I haven't talked to any uh, people who are uh, uh, versed in this kind of thing, but it's a few hours at least before any birds of prey are going to smell that, before they show up. He's waiting. And we see this too with the fact that the sun begins to go down. So this is a daytime thing. He's waiting. Now the day's fading. The sun's going down. Time is passing. God doesn't seem to be moving very quickly here. And again, is another reminder for us of how often we are called to wait on the Lord. And we're promised that when we wait on the Lord, that He will strengthen us, that He will provide for us. Isaiah 40, a verse that we commonly uh, like to recite, that we are strengthened by Him. James also tells us that when we experience the, the suffering and we wait in suffering, when we show steadfastness, when we're under that waiting, that it matures our faith so that we are brought to what? completeness. Uh, He says perfection in the sense that we have everything we need. So God uses not just suffering, but the waiting in the suffering to bring us to maturity. And then in verse 12, we see a deep sleep falls on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now the term for deep sleep that's used here is the same term that we see in Genesis 2. When God made Eve, what did he do with Adam? Put him in a deep sleep, same term. Why did he do that? 
Well, we don't have all the reasons giving, but at least in part, it is to demonstrate to both of these men that they have no part in what is going to happen, that they contribute nothing, that they are not making any effort. Why? Because they're in a deep sleep. Just as Adam would make no effort in the creation of woman, so Abram will add no effort to the the ratification of this covenant. This is going to be a unique covenant. And then additionally, dread and great darkness fell on him. This sounds ominous, and that's because it is. It indicates the presence and the work of the omnipotent and holy God. And we see these same terms used throughout Scripture to describe God's presence when he comes and is at work. In Exodus 15, Moses and the people of Israel, as they're leaving after they've been saved through the waters in the Exodus, they sing both of what God has done and what he will do. And as they're singing of what God will do and bringing them to the promised land, they sing, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. In Psalm 18, David does the same thing in describing the terror of God uh, in, in, the, in his deliverance from his enemies. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. And now Abram is experiencing the same thing. This is more than just a somber experience. It is a fearful experience. God is showing his power to Abram. You know, sometimes, uh, parents, you've experienced this. There are times where you have to jerk a knot in someone's chain. Now, that's a southern expression for for what I mean. I don't mean literally jerking or knots or anything like that. But there just comes a time where there's not real clarity here. We're not getting communication. And there seems to be, you know, um, you need to have a, a prayer meeting together or a come-to-Jesus meeting. We have all these euphemisms for what's happening of this seriousness of what needs to take place so that there is clarity and understanding. And I don't want to belittle what's happening here, but I think that there is at least a sense of that here, that Abram, God, how, I mean, he's been told the promise, he's been told the promise, he's asking honest questions, God's not afraid of honest questions, but God is going to get Abram's attention and make it crystal clear You don't need to doubt me. And so this fear and dread are a part of the equation, a part of the experience, so that Abram knows and trusts God. And then God gives him the revelation in verse 13. Folks, we're familiar with this story. It's the second time we've read it. We know what's coming. But just think for just a minute. Put yourself in Abram's shoes. You've been promised a son. You've been promised the land. Is this what you're expecting to hear? Let's read it again in verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here's the promise of the land, but here's this extra information as well that um, wouldn't have been on my wish list for how things should go down. Uh, Not just the suffering, not just the waiting, but the affliction of slavery for 400 
years. That means that we're looking more than 600 years before this promise is even going to be fulfilled because Abram still doesn't have a son. He's got to have Isaac, who's got to have Jacob, who's got to have Joseph, who's got to then by his brothers be sold into slavery and carried off to Egypt and then rise in power to then one day call and invite his family back after he's been given power to his family to come and avoid the plague or the famine rather that's in Canaan. So more than 615 years, if we just add up what we know, probably much longer than that before the promise is even going to be fulfilled. Not the kind of news that I was looking for if I was in Abram's shoes. And yet this is a part of the story, the story of God's redemption, that God is going to unfold and do this work that he intends for his people. Some of you are right now experiencing things that you did not imagine, dream, or think were going to happen. They have caught you by surprise. And you are tempted, because you're human, as I would be, to doubt God's goodness. Because your circumstances, as you look at your circumstances, you're thinking, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Just as 400 years of slavery, no matter how you slice it, it's bad. And yet God is saying, this is a part of my plan to accomplish my redemption of you. They were going to have to wait on God. They were going to have to wait on Him to save and deliver them. Their their time was going to include this word about the Amorites and the fruit of their afflictions coming, and the, the grapes of wrath almost, of the Amorites coming to fruition. What does this have to do with their suffering? You are going to suffer at times for no sin of your own. Just like God's people did. You're, You're going to experience things in life where people do things or things happen to you that are no fault of your own and you're also going to suffer for your own sins. <laughs> I mean, we do. We, we, we do things that are wrong, and we, and we reap the fruit of that, and we learn our lessons and so forth. But we have to learn to wait on God in faith and not doubt that He is good. A couple things that we can learn. First, we have to remember the character of God. He's good. He is full of love. He is full of mercy. And while this is a strange providence, this slavery for 400 years, and we can take the heart, though, however, that even in our own lives as we learn to wait for reasons that we don't understand, we're not always given this. Abram at least is given a piece of the story. It's not really good news, but he at least knows. He can tell his children this is coming. We're not always given that, and yet we're still called to trust God. God does not waste our waiting or our suffering even when we don't get the explanation why. We can know, however, and trust, however, that He is good and that He is working all things together for our good and for His glory. You can take it to the bank. It's who He is. Second, God is a redeeming God. This is also who He is. I said last week, somewhere someone said, some of the Bible in two words, God saves. That's who He is. He is a saving God. And here, He is beginning, the the plan is expanding. 
The covenant of, of, of redemption made in, in eternity past now is being delivered in these. You know, we have the, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with, with Noah. Now we've got the covenant with Abram. We're going to see the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. And it's all expanding to show God's redemptive plan. It's who he is. He's a redeeming God. And this includes you and me today. It includes our suffering Again, for something that we may not... We, there are times when we will suffer and we don't, we don't, we're not given a reason why. John 9 talks about the man born blind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that may be a bitter and hard pill to swallow when you think of your own suffering. But it is part of what God is doing to tell His story of grace. It is a story. The story of grace is something that Scripture says even the angels long to look into. It is so mysterious, so glorious, so overwhelmingly loving. And so we must not waver then in doubting the goodness of God when we suffer knowing that His glory will shine as He delivers us from our suffering, whether in this life or in the life to come. If you think about the fall of Adam and Eve, you think of them in the garden. What had they been given given to enjoy? Everything. Everything. Except for one tree. One tree. One tree. Everything. One tree. Now, I don't know where the phrase, can't see the forest for the trees, comes from, but it at least has got to have its roots in Genesis 3, because that's exactly what Satan leads Eve to do. He takes her attention away from everything and focuses on, you can't have this one thing. Did did God say? He starts. And then he comes back and he brings the lie God's God's withholding from you. Your your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be able to see good and evil. He's, He's holding out on you. So God has done nothing but goodness to Adam and Eve. He has not harmed them or deprived them in any way. Even the restriction was a protection. It was an act of love. It was a don't stick your finger in the light socket. The most loving thing you could do as a parent is teach your children not to stink, not the most loving, but a most loving thing, is don't, don't, don't do that because it's going to hurt you. Even the restriction was an act of love, even though Adam and Eve couldn't understand. And what does Satan do? He narrows the vision, narrows the vision, narrows the vision to see this is the one thing you can't have. And then what does that Eve and Adam believe? God's withholding on me. God's holding out on me. And they go from that to now God wants to harm me. He wants to do me harm. He's not good. He, 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 and, and isn't this the same temptation that you and I face? We look at our circumstances. We feel the weight and the pain of sin and suffering in our own lives. And we are tempted to think, God doesn't love me. He's not for me. And we start to, we start to have this, this tendency to want to give up. Because our circumstances are screaming at us. God's not good. God's not good. God's not good. And so Abram's example, this story, this of what's unfolding right here, this picture of the covenant is not just for him. It is for you and for me. 
Because this is what God, this is how God works with us in covenant, in relationship, so that we don't forget that He's good. Even when our circumstances scream at us that life is not worth living, or that it's not worth obeying God, or that it's not worth listening to Him, or following Him, or trusting Him, the covenant is there to remind you He's good. He's good. He's good. How good is he? How long is he good? Abram asked the tough question, Lord, how are you going to do this? I don't have a child. How are you going to do this? I don't have the land. How are you going to do this? Maybe you feel like asking the same question today. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy. Sorry, I skipped a bunch because I went off the rabbit trail here. Skipped a lot. I covered it all, just in different words. Sometimes that happens. Listen now when you ask that question. How can I know the God of the covenant is going to keep his word and that he's good? Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I don't need to explain to you what a thousand means, do I? Right? <laughs> That's the picture of complete, 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 completeness, 10 times 10 times 10, right? It's God doesn't ever stop. He is faithful. He keeps his covenant promises to Abram and to you. And all of that is proven in the cross of Christ. So as you enter in this week of thanksgiving, as you and I prepare for the Advent season when we celebrate the coming of the Son of God, keep in mind this is all the result and in the context of the covenant promises of a God who is faithful and who never stops loving us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, cause us to see, cause us to know, cause us to trust, deepen our heart cords in the anchors of your love, that we will not get distracted by the circumstances, the real stuff in our life that hurts, real pain, real suffering, real disappointment, real loneliness, real depression, real anxiety and fear, Lord, cause us to see through all of that with eyes of faith to who you are, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who keeps His promises, whose love knows no bounds, whose faithfulness stretches to the skies. Lord, anchor us in these truths so that we can know Your great love for us and walk in confidence of Your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.